Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm, Psalm 1. And if you can't please stand, Psalm 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah, the law of the Lord. And on his Torah, his law, his instruction, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does is he prospers. Now turn with me to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Verses 1 and 2. And three. Why not? Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. You may be seated. Father, we come before you knowing that you are gracious, loving, benevolent, merciful, and you love to feed your children. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us, changing us, opening our eyes and ears to hear. I pray for the children in this church, oh Lord, that you'd have mercy on them. They would save the little ones here, bring them to Christ Jesus, help them to see the beauty of Christ, help these children to be slaves of righteousness and holiness. I pray that your preaching would be working their hearts. We also pray for the churches here in the Salem area. Bless your people, Lord. Let your lampstand shine in this dark place. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all the members here. Thank you for the faithfulness, the love, the zeal, the passion towards you. Renew our love towards you this morning, Lord, as we hear you speaking to us through the preaching. Guard me, help me to be faithful, deliver me from heresy, error, so that you may be glorified, Lord. Seeing in, through, because of Jesus, they can pray. Amen. Amen. I still remember 
I was telling Rachel and the kids last night how I remember I had a math teacher, and this math teacher was teaching us the commutative property in multiplication. And I still remember his voice echoing in my ears even today. He would say in Portuguese, a ordem, a ordem dos fatores não altera o produto. The order of the factors do not alter the product. So when they're multiplying, you can do 2 times 3 times 4, or 4 times 2 times 3, and you can change the order of things, and that will not alter the final result. But most of life is not like that. There is order. Things need a certain order. If you are cooking, you can have all the ingredients there, but if you don't follow a certain order, <laughs> you know what that food will taste like. If you are building something, you can have all the parts there, but if you don't have an order, you can have all the parts and the tools, but if you don't know the order of things, you will do nothing. The same with painting. If you are an artist and you're painting, you know that there's an order for things. Luke, you know about painting. There's an order. You don't get the masker, the paper, the tape. You have the paint, the, the brushes, the roller, but there's an order. And usually, there's an order of masking first things, prepping, and then moving. I brought up this yesterday, and Emily said, yes, when you're baking bread, you have an order for the ingredients. It's sad how we come to the Bible, and suddenly we, th we think that there must be no order with the canon, with the books of the Bible. I disagree. I think that God is a, the God of all beauty and coherence. Therefore, the canon of scriptures, the order of the books in our Bible... should be important. And that's what I want to cover, starting today, the order of the books in the Bible, and especially in what we call the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh. That's what I want to start this morning, and we will continue next Lord's Day. So here's the outline for this morning's sermon. First, a prologue, just some introduction about the canon and the order of the books. Then we're going to move to the Protestant, the English Protestant structure of the canon, then you're going to look at the structure of the Tanakh, and then the importance of the Tanakh structure, the structure of the Hebrew Old Testament. So, if you're going to talk about the order of the books of the canon, logically that's in the major theme as you're studying the scriptures, the theme of the canon of the scriptures. And I'm not going to spend time here because in this series, I had a whole sermon about the canon of the Scriptures. So I just want to refresh our mind very quickly how the subject of the canon is inseparable from the subject of inspiration. It's because God inspired certain writings, certain books, that we need a canon, a group of books with all those inspired writings. And you remember I said that the church does not create the Bible. 
Instead, the church simply recognized the voice of God in those inspired books. Very different from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, where in that book or that movie, you see that they, they, they're teaching that actually the Bible came up with Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. And actually, that has nothing to do with the history of the church and the inspired writings. The triune God himself produced his own canon. That's his. So, by virtue of the divine origin and the divine inspiration, the scriptures have an internal power and self-authentication and self-validation. No man needs to put a stamp on the scriptures. God himself has placed that stamp. We, as his people, as his sheep, we simply hear his voice through his inspired writings. Uh, John Frame, he says, Remember that the church did not canonize the Bible, did not make the Bible authoritative. Rather, read these books and discovered that God had already made them authoritative. Basically, God illumined these writings so that the church could recognize God's voice in them. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Therefore, the very nature of the Word of God, an inspired covenantal document, requires the preservation, canonization of the books, forming what we have as the Bible. God himself preserved and canonized his own written revelation. If you think about it, the Bible is different from every other writing. Nothing is like the Scriptures. Nothing is like the Scriptures. No other writing will save you. No other writing will sanctify you. Only the scriptures. The power is in the word of God. Therefore, it's just logical that God would preserve those writings to continue saving and sanctifying his people. That's why he preserved. He created his book and preserved the canon of the scriptures. And that leads, so you think about the canon, you, you, God himself preserving his, his inspired writings. So, and it's because we believe that there is a canon, there is a body of inspired writings that leads us to the question whether, does the order matter? Okay, or it doesn't matter. As long as we have the books, who cares about the order? That's an important question. Does the order matter? Does God care about the order of the books? Is it important for us as we are getting to know God more, know His Word more? I will argue for a yes. It is important. And you can see that just how the Bible begins. There is a reason why the Bible begins with what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You see, the Bible, most scholars think that Job is the oldest writing. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't start with Job. And then you have some chronological Bibles that for me makes no sense, and they start with Job. There is a theological and a logical reason for starting the Bible with Genesis. And the Bible doesn't start with Revelation. The Bible doesn't start with Psalms. Though some Bibles they give to you, they have Psalms and then the Gospels. The Bible doesn't start there. So there is an order. There is a logic behind 
There is a canonicler, canonicler, those working under God's providence and sovereignty in orchestrating this canon. So John Sailhammer, he says, the shape of the Old Testament canon as a whole must be taken seriously and integrated into our tax model. Not only do the books of the Hebrew Bible have authors, but also the Hebrew Bible as a whole and as a canon is the product of composition and authorship. As we are going to develop more and more. And you see that because some books, some books are theologically foundation to others. So as you're reading these scriptures, some books are, they come first because of theology. You cannot understand Isaiah Especially when Isaiah calls Israel in chapter 1, you, Sodom, you, Gomorrah, you do not understand that if you're not following from Genesis and then you come to Judges where Israel has become just like Sodom and Gomorrah. So there is a theological order and the later authors will use that structure to develop their message. So, as we are thinking about the order of the books, that leads to this title here, the text, the paratext, and the, stru- the textual structure of the canon. We have the greatest privilege of all oh, in all times to have the Bible in one book. The codex, the codices. But for most of history of humankind, they did not have this. That's pretty recent to have all the books in one volume. We are so spoiled and so self-centered that we think that the Bible came down from heaven just like this. Or some people, just like the King James Version, came down from heaven with leather cover. Stephen Dempster reminds us that It must be remembered that for most of its early life, it was never a book in this technical sense. It was a collection of scrolls, to be exact, kept together in archive or in a library or at a sacred place. Remember, they would have these scrolls. And let me tell you, those scrolls, there was a profound reverence, respect, and honor for the placement and the carrying and the handling of those scrolls. If you think about the Torah, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, that's a very good example. There are five scrolls there, five books, and yet they make sure that they're all together and there is a coherence, there is a logical flow from Genesis to Deuteronomy. One scholar says, yet not even the most radical literary critique would dare to claim that the correct sequence of scrolls was unimportant for interpretation. It's very important as you're reading Genesis, the loss, the loss of God's presence and how that's going to be developed through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Remember that the Bible is not an anthology. 
What is an anthology? Anthology is a work that you just get the best writings of other people and just put together. There is no order. As long as those are the best writings, who cares about the order? No. The Bible is God's book. There is a story. There is coherence. So, Greg Goswell, he says, the Bible as a literary work is made up of text and paratext. Paratext may be defined as everything in a text other than the words. That is to say, those elements that are adjoined to the text but are not part of the text itself. If the text is limited strictly to the words, the paratext of Scripture embraces features such as the order of the biblical books, the names assigned to the different books, and the differing schemes of textual division within the books. Since these elements are adjoined to the text, they have an influence on reading and interpretation. So paratext comes from the Greek para, to come alongside, and these things are coming alongside the main text to help us. So part of the paratext is what we have. The Bible in one volume, chapters and verses, those are not in the original manuscripts. Those are added later. Even some of the vowels in the Hebrew language, those are added later. So you see that that's part that was added to help us better grasp and interpret the Bible. And part of the paratext, something that comes to help us understand the, the inspired writing, is the placement of the books in the Bible. And, and though most, I would say most Christians do not hold to the infallible inspired position of the books of the Bible, amen? I'm not going to die whether Malachi is the last book of the Bible or comes five books before the last book. Okay? I, I, I'm not willing to die for that. I'm willing to die for Malachi. If, I, if I'm in a country where they persecute Christians and I have a copy of Malachi and they say, do you have the word of God with you? I'm going to say, yes, I do have the word of God with me. Or you're going to die because of that. I'm willing to die for Malachi, Esther, Habakkuk. But I'm not willing to die for the placement in the camp. Most Christians would agree with that. But that doesn't mean that the placement of the books have no importance. Or that God did not care about the placement of the books. We believe that under God's providence and care, much effort and thought was put in the grouping and structuring of the position of the books. There was a conscious theological and logical reason for the ordering of the books the God who wrote and preserved his writings also orchestrated the organization of these writings in his book. God's not only concerned with the canonization of his individual books, but also with the organization of these books in order to form a coherent story. That's what I believe. God is not just in the business to throw all his sacred, inspired writings in a closet and oh, whatever, who cares about the order? No, I believe he was also orchestrating, caring for the placement of those books. So, that leads us to our English Bibles. 
how our English Bibles are put together. So our English Bibles are divided in two major parts. We have the Old and the New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And here's what's fascinating as you study the translation into the English language and the Bible becoming this English book that we have. It's fascinating that the Reformers, as they are translating the Bible into different languages, and they're especially using the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, and the Vulgate is being taken from what? The Greek version. And by the time of the Reformers, the Greek version, the Septuagint, the LXX, by the time of the Reformers, the Septuagint had all the apocryphal books. So more than 50 books. But most of the reformers, as they were translating the Bibles, what did they do with those apocryphal books? They reject. Why? Because they were looking at the Hebrew canon and say, oh, Jesus' Bible did not have these books here. But what is fascinating is that instead of keeping the order of the Hebrew Bible, they didn't keep the order of the Hebrew Bible. They kept the same books of the Hebrew Bible, but they kept the order of what? The Greek version. So our Bibles follow the order of the Greek version. Jason, De, Jason Derushi, he says, the order of our English Bible is patterned after the Latin Vulgate, which was structured after some arrangements of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Look at that. The sequence, law, history, poetry, and wisdom and prophecy is likely de derived from the Greco-Roman tendency to arrange collections according to chronology and genre. That's how our Bibles are arranged. It's very Greek way of thinking. Genre, law, boom. History, then we have all the historical books. Wisdom and poetry, boom. Prophetic writings. That's how we do our libraries. That's how we organize things, right? A very Greek way. That's not the Hebrew way. So, as we are thinking about these things, it's important for us to remember, and here's how our English Bibles are structured, and you have in your notes, too. And I don't know which one is easier for you to see the, the division of the books, but it's very, you can see that there is an order, very Greco-Roman, the order of things. So you have the Pentateuch. Penta, five to cause books or scrolls, the first five books, arranged by Moses. Then you have the historical books, arranged primarily chronological, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Then you move to the wisdom literature, also structured chronologically first. You have Job, because they would say that Job is the first one. Then you have the prophets, primarily structured with time and size. So then you have the 39 books in our English Protestant Bibles. That's different from the Bible that I, I call the Jesus Bible. And... Of course, the whole Bible is Jesus. Amen? 
the whole Bible it says, but I'm, I'm, I mean, when he was here on earth and he would go to the synagogues, there was a scripture, these scrolls. And his Bible was different, the way that was structured. So, even though we have the same books, our Old Testament, 39, the Tanakh, 24, it's all the same books. It's just different the way that they arrange the books. So we have first and second Samuel, we have first and second Kings, we have first and second Chronicles. Guess what? They have Samuel, they have Kings and Chronicles. We have twelve minor prophets. Guess what? Guess what? It's just one scroll, the twelve. Nehemiah and Ezra together, one book. So that's why we have 39, they have 24. It's all the same. It's the same pizza, just cut differently. Different slice, but it's the same pizza. That's how we see. So, and, and, and receives the acronym Tanakh. You see the Tanakh, that's an acronym for how the Bible is divided. The Hebrew Bible is divided. Okay, so you have the T for the Torah, the instruction. Then you have the N there for Nevi'im, the prophets. And then you have the K for the Ketuvim, the writings. So you have the T, the N, and the K, Tanakh. That's an acronym. And as we shall see next Lord's Day, that, that was the way that Jesus held the scriptures. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the division of the Bible. In Luke 24, you're going to see how he opens their minds so they could see how he was the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Why the Psalms? Because Psalms is the largest book of the writings, the Ketuvim. So Jesus himself held to this tripartite division, the Tanakh. So that leads us to the importance of this structure. Okay? In the previous sermons, we saw how the drum of redemption is coherent. Remember, we saw from creation to new creation. We saw from Adam to the last Adam how there is coherence in the story of the Bible. Amen? All these covenants, at least I heard from you how marvelous it was to see the coherence in the unity of the scriptures. But this drama has coherence in unity, I believe, because the books, the structure of the canon provides that unity and understanding. It's only when we see how the pieces fit together. Think about you buy this beautiful puzzle picture. And you look at the box, you have that beautiful picture, this wonderful waterfall, Cataratas do Iguaçu, south of Brazil, that massive waterfall. And now you need to build there is the picture puzzle. It's only when you put all the pieces together in the right order that you're going to see the beauty of that picture. Amen? The rainbow has an order. That's why it's beautiful, how God placed the colors together. And the same with the scriptures. There is an order that brings the beauty. One of the reasons why Leviticus is so boring for most of us is because we are not reading Leviticus in the flow of the structure of the Bible. We are not tracing Leviticus back to Genesis and the loss of the presence of God. And how now in Leviticus, 
for the first time since the Garden of Eden, man, the high priest, has access into God's presence. And how they're going to maintain that presence. That's the book of Leviticus. But you see, we are not reading Leviticus in the flow of the scriptures. And the coherence of the scriptures. Another example is the book of Chronicles. In our Bibles, Chronicles is just the leftover of Kings. So if you're reading the Bible, those yearly programs, and you pass through Kings, it comes to Chronicles, it's just like, oh my goodness. It's all the same. Peter Gentry, he says... An example of, the, of how the arrangement affects our interpretation can be seen by considering the book of Kings and Chronicles. In our English Bibles, Chronicles follows Kings and is considered by many Christians to be a redundant re- rehash of Kings. Yet, the historical moment in which each was written and the motive for writing each book differs greatly between Kings and Chronicles. Kings was written during the exile to answer the question, has God failed in his promises? Chronicle was written after the exile to deal with the question, do we as returned exiles have any future hope? Placed at the end of the canon in the Hebrew tradition, Chronicles provides a bird's eye view of the entire Old Testament and ends by pointing to the promise of the Messiah. Thus, the exegesis an interpretation of individual books is sometimes dependent on the arrangement in the canon. It's fascinating because we are going to talk more about Chronicles. But Chronicles in the Greek version is placed right after Kings. And the name of the book in Greek literally means the things left behind, the leftovers. That's the title in Greek for Chronicles. Yeah, you get Chronicles in the Tanakh. That's the last book of the canon. And it's amazing to see how the book of Chronicle begins. Begins with a genealogy. And the first name in that genealogy is who? Adam. It's tracing the whole history. We're going to talk more about the ending, the beginning of the Tanakh, how important it is. But we start seeing how the placement of the canon, the structure, is powerfully influenced how we read and how we see the beauty of a book. We saw that especially with Ruth, remember? And when we place Ruth, as in, the, in, in some verses of the Hebrew canon, right after Proverbs and before Song of Songs, we see how right there the Gentile woman becomes the example of the Proverbs wise woman, the wise wife, and leads us to see what a godly marriage is like that will be explored in Song of Songs with Boaz and Ruth. So the placement is very important. So as we think about the, the placement that will help us as we are studying and reading the scriptures. So here's one example. If you're thinking about judges, you come to judges and you have all those characters, those judges. And you need to trace that. Wait, wait a second. Here. Now let, let's deal with Samson. Where is he at? Oh, he's in Judges. Where is Judges at? Oh, Judges is in the former prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, the former prophets is part of the prophets. The prophets is part of the Tanakh, connected to, to Genesis, Torah, and then to the writings. And then we trace even further. And the Tanakh is part of the whole Bible. 
That's how we must interpret these scriptures. So there is always a larger and larger story connected to each individual and short story. And that's how we must always interpret these scriptures. Another example is with the letter prophets. So you can see how, you can see in your notes too, how the Hebrew Bible is divided. So you have the prophets, so you have the former prophets, and then you have the letter prophets. The letter prophets are the, what we know as the writing prophets. Then you have Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. But it's fascinating, you see the structure. Look, look at the bottom of the, the table there, the chart, because you're going to see how you have narrative, the Torah, followed by narrative, the former prophets, right? Judges, Joshua, through kings, it's narrative. And that's the first part of the prophets. Followed by two, commentary. The placement of the prophets, the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve, right here is very important. A lot of people think that the prophets, they are just doom and gloom preachers. Oh, here they are. It's so down. Actually, when you see the structure, that's not the truth. They're actually God's agent to comment, to explain what's taking place. So you read the, the, the letter prophets and you understand why they are in, in exile. The prophets are explaining the past, the present, and the future. So they're no longer preachers of gloom and doom, but they are God's own agent of interpreting and helping people to see a future hope that will come. So that's just some examples. Uh, the, the certainty of canonicler in ordering the books. So you think about the thousands and thousands of possible ways for organizing the books of the Bible. Think about the Old Testament and the thousands and thousands of ways of arranging the books. You could start with Chronicles, you could start with Kings, you could start with Song of Songs, you could start with Job, you could have Job followed by what? Genesis. So you think about all the thousands and thousands and thousands of ways of arranging the books of the Bible, and yet there has, there has always been, even though it varies very little, some books, sometimes Ruth is placed before Psalms, most of the time Ruth is placed after Proverbs. Besides that, there is a pattern and a structure that has always been maintained. The organization of the books helped God's people in interpreting the individual books and seeing the big picture. Another, looking at the prophets once again, you see how it's, it's a majestic work of art because the prophets in the Tanakh is divided in four and four. You have four former prophets and four latter prophets. When a scholar says the sequence of four plus four is hardly a coincidence. And it is intentionally symmetrical to forge an inseparable bound between the history of Israel and the prophetic word. The history of Israel 
is inseparable from the prophetic word, the word of God. Also, we see the symmetry of the amount of words in each major section of the, the Tanakh. Here's just one example. So, for example, the Torah has about 80,000 words. The former prophets, almost 70,000 words. The latter prophets, about 70, average, 70,000 words in their writings, once again. So you see how, that's amazing. You have this symmetry with all the different ways that you could orchestrate, divide. You see the mind of God in enabling some wise, spirit-empowered man to organize his book. So Dempster writes, he says, Thus the canon was not in any way an arbitrary accumulation of books that were gradually recognized as authoritative by the Jewish community. No, rather, it was a genuine work of art. A logical motive is discernible in every detail of the distribution and arrangement. It's not just like they were throwing all these books there, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that seems like inspired. No, there was an understanding of the drama of redemption and how this book should be put together for a coherent understanding of this story. John Sayohammer, he says, the more closely we examine the final shape of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the clearer it becomes that its shape and structure are not accidental. I like what he says. He says, there are clear signs of intelligent life behind its formation. And if that is so, we should be asking, what is the theological message behind this shape? And I say, amen. It is a beautiful work of art, orchestrated by intelligent life, and the most intelligent life of all, God's mind orchestrating this. We know that Moses was the first one in organizing, putting together this canon, and then other other men came alongside to make, putting the books, these scrolls together to form this coherent story. And most scholars believe that Ezra was one of the fundamental, Ezra and Nehemiah were one of the fundamental men in orchestrating and, and, and coming together as, the, as canonical, putting the canon and the story, the beauty of these books together. Uh, also, Important to note is, as I mentioned before, the structure of the Tanakh. You have narrative, commentary, narrative. So you have narrative, Genesis through Kings. Then there is a pause, and here you have commentary. And it's God teaching his people why they are in exile, how to live in exile, and how to expect for the new exodus that is to come. And then you have commentary in their writings. And then you have Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Lamentation, Ruth. And these books are all teaching us, especially the people under the Old Covenant, how to live in exile. How to live as wise men and women. How to live as men and women who fear God when you are under the darkness of exile. Suffering like Job. 
when things don't seem to make sense, Ecclesiastes. And that's what the commentary that God is giving us, this commentary to teach us to understand history and how to live under his orchestration of history. And what is beautiful is that the New Testament follows the same pattern. You can see that the New Testament does not follow the Greek way of thinking. Otherwise, Luke would be together with Acts. But Luke's not together with Acts, and the writings of John are separated. If you were following the Greek way of thinking, all the writings of John should be together, and Luke and Acts should be together because by the same author. But what the New Testament canoniclers were doing, they were just following the pattern of the Tanakh. So you have narrative, commentary, narrative, following the same structure. The Bible begins and ends with narrative. It's God's story. God is telling his drama of redemption. And then God himself interprets history with his inspired commentators. The commentary section helps us to understand and apply God's revelation, how to live under his covenant. That's what the latter prophets do, the writings, and that's what Paul and the other epistles do. They help us to live under the covenant that we are. That's the commentary section. So, to conclude, here is the question. Why? Why should Christians care about it? Should Christians care about it at all? Why spend, what, 45 minutes here talking about the structure of the Tanakh? Why come on a Sunday morning here and talk about the order of the canonical books? Who cares? I believe that we all should care. And here's the reason. We read in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is what? His delight is what? In his Torah. His covenantal instruction. That's not law. It's not talking about just Leviticus here. Torah means covenantal instruction. The whole body of covenantal structures. All the writings of God. The whole canon. That's what the righteous one should be doing. Delighting himself in the Torah of God. The Bible. The scriptures. But his delight is in the Torah of the Lord. And on his Torah... He meditates day and night. We are to delight in the different genres. Poetic books. Some people love psalms. Some people love narrative. Some people love the epistles. Some people love the, the apocalypse. Yes, we are to delight in all the different genres. But we are to delight in the whole story. The whole canon. Psalm, we read this psalm to you in the beginning. Psalm 111, 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. We have a duty of investigating, studying hard, and pondering upon all the works of the Lord. Would anybody here disagree that the canon of the Scriptures is a marvelous work of the Lord? 
Would anybody disagree that the canon, the Bible, is one of God's most marvelous works? And if the canon of Scripture is a marvelous work of God, what is our duty? Study it. Find delight in studying the Word of God. And then when we look, as we are talking about the importance of the Word, when we look at the structure of the Tanakh itself, we see the importance of God's Word. Just look at the beginning of each section. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The beginning of each section. There is a spectacular emphasis on the Word of God, the Torah of God. The Torah begins with Genesis 1 and 2. And by the power of His Word, God creates. And the first thing that He creates is the ability for us to have day and night. By the power of His Torah, His instruction, His Word, we have day and night. And we know that Adam and Eve, they can only enjoy God's presence if they do a delight and obey his Torah. You open the next section, that's the prophets, the Nevi'im. Begins with Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is a type of a new Adam. About to enter the new Eden, the new promised land. And that's, as you're reading Joshua 1, it says... If you can open there, Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8. It says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the Torah of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right, uh, do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it, what? Day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you have good success. And then, the beginning of the next part of the Tanakh, the Ketuvim, opens with Psalm. Psalm 1 and 2. And what do we read in Psalm 1 and 2? About the righteous man... Who does what? Meditates on the Torah of the Lord day and night. Finds his delight right there. And Psalm 2 tells us that the only man able to do that fully and completely is Jesus Christ. But then you see how it's preparing us that just by this opening of each section, how it's through the Torah by delighting, obeying, treasuring God's Word that we can enjoy His presence. The opposite is what? Exile. Once we stop treasuring and obeying, we are sent into exile away from His presence. And that's exactly how the Tanakh is structured. The exile is a major theme in the Tanakh. The books are placed in a way that emphasizes, there's an emphasis on the loss of God's presence because People stop treasuring God's Word. And that helps us to prepare ourselves for the coming of the New Testament. The only solution from the exile of God's presence is the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who embodies Psalm 1 and 2. 
Jesus, the Messiah, he's better than Adam because he fully delights and obeys the Torah of the Lord. He's better than Joshua. So you see how the canon teaches us about the importance of the Word of God and prepares us for the coming of our loved, loved Savior and Christ Jesus. So I pray that as we study this, instead of thinking that's boring, that we would delight ourselves in the Torah of the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love towards us in opening our eyes. Help us. Help us to see your beauty. Help us to see the beauty of your word. Help us to delight ourselves in your word. We have a problem that we are always trying to find delight, and we are always trying to delight ourselves in, in worthless things, not in your word. And that's why so often we are downcast, depressed, in sin. It's because we are not delighting ourselves in your word. So help us. Help us to behold your beauty. Help us to stand in awe. Because you deserve all the adoration. To you alone be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.